0: Have you ever wondered how investors get off-market deals that have built-in upside from day one? If you could drastically increase your deal flow with these types of properties with just a few simple steps, would you? Today's guest, Axel Ragnarsson, walks us through the exact steps he takes to find off-market deals and why him and his team have been so successful at this crucial aspect of investing. We'll hear those exact steps just after our brief intro. This is Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate, where we guide you through the relentless pursuit of financial independence. I'm your host, Justin Moy, managing partner at Perpetual Wealth Capital, a multifamily real estate investing firm that lets everyday people invest passively in income producing apartment buildings. Hey investors, welcome back to another episode of Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate. Today, I'm sitting down with Axel. Now, Axel entered the world of real estate by flipping homes before eventually being introduced to income-producing properties, such as what we do here, multifamily. Now, by age 24, Axel was using private capital to purchase off-market deals and eventually scaled his company, Align Real Estate Partners, to over $17 million in assets under management, and he himself being involved in more than $30 million in real estate transactions. Axel, we're really excited to have you here. Thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. Hey, so tell us about you, you know, what you do and why you do it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, great question. You know, I think that the short answer is going to be very similar to the name of the show here, which is... We want to build passive income and we want to build wealth. I think that's why everybody's in real estate. But the spark notes, and I won't go deep on the background because it doesn't necessarily answer that question specifically, but there is some overlap where I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. I grew up in New Hampshire and I currently live in Boston, but grew up in an entrepreneurial family. And something that was instilled in me from an early age was if you're going to be spending a lot of your time working you might as well be working towards the creation of something that if you were to stop working, you can either sell or that's going to continue paying you. So my parents weren't in real estate. I didn't come from like a real estate family, but I knew that if I was going to be working a lot and spending a lot of time working, there should be something that's there if I were to stop other than just the disappearance of a paycheck. So for me, I knew I was always going to run a business. So I got into real estate as a result because it's proven business model. And it was a great application of if you can hustle, you can make money quickly for sure. And it also achieves both those goals, right? Where if you stop working and you're buying income-producing real estate, you're still going to get paid. And you're also creating equity in a lot of the deals that you do if you're buying the right deals. So it was twofold kind of check both those boxes. And my goal from an early age was I want to build sustainable long-term passive income while also building a balance sheet. Basically, getting into a business to where I could create outsized value from the inputs. So for me, that was real estate. And now our business has really evolved over the last few years, the last few years being doing a lot of my own deals with my own capital and growing the business on that side. But in the last couple of years, we've really shifted to working with investors and helping regular folks or folks that want to invest in real estate, but don't necessarily have the time to go out there and find deals and put deals together uh, to invest in real estate. So- a lot of what we do now and a lot of the reasons behind what we do is giving folks that are busy professionals that are normally investing in a 401k or in the stock market, the opportunity to actually generate some passive income and build wealth through participating in our deals. That's a big why, and you know, I could get into that, but I just saw so many folks want to get involved with what we were doing, what I was doing. And this is an avenue in which to help those folks. So that's the why now, but it all ties back into passive income and wealth, just like you
0: guys are, I'm sure, talking about every week or however often you're putting up these shows, I'm sure you're (laughs) touching on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really like the beginning, you know, hey, if you're going to work Make sure that there's something there for you when you're done working and when you can't work. And that's the progression of my life was, hey, I wanted to go into the trades and get paid per hour because I hated the salary life. I thought, well, I might as well get paid for my time. You know, My parents worked salary jobs and no matter how hard they worked or what they did, they got paid the same amount. Then, of course, it spiraled into other thought process alternative investments. Then, you know, here we are at real estate. So tell us about some of these deals that people invest in. So what made you want to start using other people's money for deals and what kind of deals are they? I know you mentioned you used to flip homes. Was that kind of the starter of it? Are you still investing in flips or exactly how does that work? Yeah. So it's
1: interesting. I mean, as of what we do now, we buy mid to large multifamily properties in a few markets throughout the country, mainly New Hampshire, Central Florida, Texas, Indianapolis, or a few of the markets that we're in. And we buy day one discounted real estate in terms of the purchase price uh, with a value add component. And we just create value through operations, through renovations, basically through running the property at a higher level than the previous owner did. And that allows us to pay our investors, you know, above average returns for participating in those deals. Initially, though, I got into real estate with the interest in flipping houses, but the first few deals I actually did were small multifamily two to four unit multifamily. So I got right into the income producing side of the business. And I flipped a few homes early in my real estate career, you know this is five, six years ago. And that just wasn't for me in terms of the time intensive nature of overseeing a flipping operation. It didn't align with my skill set, right? It wasn't really what I enjoyed. So I did a few of those projects. I got absolutely hosed on one, lost a ton of money on a flip. This is four years ago now, my own money. And after that deal was done, I was like, hey, this just is not for me. My skill set's doing a line with this part of the business. So I did that early on, but in order to scale a buy and hold portfolio, if you don't have a lot of cash coming in, whether it's through a business or your day job or what have you is you need to find really great deals and you need to finance them with some kind of product that doesn't require you to dump a bunch of your money into those deals. I was raising a lot of private capital from private lenders initially. So I was working with a lot of individuals that were doing private lending, 90, 95% loan to value. They'd loan on a property. I'd give them a first position mortgage, pay them 10 to 12% interest. And then I'd go and refinance my money out in six, nine, 12 months, depending on the size of the deal and recycling my cash into each subsequent deal. So that's how I organically grew my portfolio that I personally own. And that replaced my income and allowed me to go full-time in the business and at some point, you want to scale, right? And you want to start doing larger deals. And it can be harder to do that in kind of a gradual way, if that makes sense. So for me, yeah. I was doing a four unit, then I was doing a six unit, then I was doing an eight unit, then maybe a 10 or a 12 unit. But I wanted to do 50, 60, 70 unit deals. And it's hard to make that jump with your own capital. I mean, that's a challenging thing to do. So I realized that either I either had to partner with other folks, which I've done, or raise capital from investors. And it took me forever to feel comfortable enough to work with investors. But eventually, I got to the point where, I was like, you know, I feel really confident in what I'm doing and have a really nice track record in the markets that we're operating and I know really, really well. And there's plenty of folks in my network that want to ride shotgun on these deals and invest in these deals, but it wasn't something that I really actively pursued until a couple of years ago when I was like, enough is enough. I have so many folks that want to participate and I really want to scale this business. And that's when we started taking in money and doing larger deals, which is really where we're at now is doing 50 plus unit multifamily transactions, various markets throughout the country. So that's like mid to large, because
0: you had mentioned mid to large multifamily. Do you mean about 50 plus? Is that what you would consider mid-large? Yeah, I would consider mid-size to be 20 to 80 units, large maybe
1: being 80 plus. You know, we've raised money and done deals that are 28 units, 40 unit portfolios. We've done a 204 unit deal in Arizona where we partner with other folks on that. You know, there's multiple people involved in a deal of that size. But I like to think that we go to where the value is. We do a lot of prospecting and marketing to find off market deals, to get in front of sellers. And if we find a 16 unit deal with a lot of value on it, we're certainly going to bring that to investors. It doesn't have to necessarily be a certain size. Conversely, if we find 160 unit deal with a lot of value, it's the same thing. I look for good stories, mom and pop owners with low rents that aren't optimizing their property. And if we can bring value to our investor base, then we're probably
0: going to pursue that deal. So that's priority number one for me. Is that what you mean by discount day one? And you had mentioned that a couple of minutes ago. Exactly, what does that mean? Are looking for discounted properties on day one? Can you explain that a little bit more? Absolutely. You know, for example, you know, a deal that we recently
1: did was a 40-unit portfolio up in New Hampshire. You know, one 40? of our core market, 40, yeah, four zero. So one seller with a number of different properties, smaller multifamily properties, but she wanted to package them up and sell them as a package. So we paid, I think it was 102 grand a door and we could have turned around right after closing and listed them on the market for probably 110 to 115 a door. So the day that we close, basically we're fundamentally earning 10% on our equity day one. And one of my core investing philosophies is velocity of money is the most important piece of the equation to consider. Cash flow is great. We're into this for passive income, like we mentioned at the top of the show. And that's certainly something that I care about and that all investors should care about. But you earn the bulk of your returns through creating value, through forcing appreciation, through growing your equity. So for us, it's so much easier to deliver for our investors and to offer great returns. If we come in and we buy, it was 4.75 is what it appraised for, and we bought it at four, four and change. So we've created all of this value day one at closing. And yeah, cash flow is great. We're going to earn returns from cash flow, but it's going to pale in comparison to the day one return that we're getting. And then after we finish our value add program, put 10 grand a door in, that's going to be worth mid five millions, right? And then we've created yeah. all this additional value. So that's what I mean when I say discounted day one purchase is we want to close and already be in a great position for ourselves and for our investors.
0: So how do we pull that off? Because things are so hot now, everywhere you go, there's investors who are sprinting away from primary markets and secondary tertiary markets just to have a little meat on the bone. And then people are coming in and buying these things super overpriced. So how are you finding deals like that still? Are you purely off market? Are these better to be found in those kind of smaller, like you had mentioned 20 40, 50 units? What's what's the strategy for finding great deals like that? Yeah, that's a great question, right? It's the million-dollar question. Um, <laughs> that's why I'm asking. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: So I'll kind of approach it from like a high-level strategic perspective and then a tactical, like this is literally what we're doing to find these deals. But I'll start at the strategic level, which is kind of like what you mentioned just now. We typically look in secondary and tertiary markets, especially if we're going away from our local area, right? So I live in Boston. A lot of the business we do is an hour north of Boston, up in Manchester, New Hampshire, which is about 110, 115,000 people. And it's a ton of mom and pop owners. Another market that we buy in is Lakeland, Florida, which is about 30 minutes outside of Tampa, 30 minutes outside of Orlando, similar size, 100,000 people and change, a lot of mom and pop owners. So we select these markets that are relatively close to large markets. You know, Parts of Manchester, you can get to Boston about 45 minutes. If you live in Lakeland, you can get to Tampa, which is one of the hottest markets in the country, in 30 minutes. So we like to look in these markets that are a little bit outside the core, kind of primary markets, and we want to market and we want to prospect to mom and pop owners. I think that people get hung up on the physical criteria quite a bit. You know, they're looking for this year built, this unit range, these types of units, and that's certainly important, right? You should define your physical criteria, but. If our team gets a call from a seller and the seller's like, you know, I'm in my late seventies, I'm thinking about getting out of the business. My kids don't want to take this over. I've owned it for 20 years. That gets me way more excited than any physical attributes to the property because I'm like, that's a story that we can get behind and a story that typically translates to a good deal, the ability to actually lock up a good deal. So we go after these markets that are primarily mom and pop owners, or there's a large majority of mom and pop owners. We market to the physical criteria that's typically owned by mom and pop owners, which is usually these mid-sized multifamily properties. And we just look for good stories. We look for long-term ownership. We look for low rents. We look for physical attributes that might show that there's some kind of deferred maintenance or that it's not being run at an optimal level. So that's what we like to pursue. And then tactically speaking, we do a lot of direct mail. Direct mail still works. A lot of people say you can't do direct mail. And I actually kind of agree if you're going to be marketing to 80 plus unit buildings, where you're starting to get to an institutional level. And even if you're marketing to 30, 40 plus unit buildings, if you're in a core market, direct mail still might not be a great strategy. But if you're looking in secondary tertiary markets with a lot of mom and pop owners and a physical criteria that is typically owned by mom and pop owners, direct mail is going to get you some results. So we do a lot of direct mail. Basically, we have the same list. We mail that list. We cold call that list. We go out there and try and find email addresses for the owners of those LLCs. And we email that list. And then we're really, really active just in the markets that we buy in, both from a networking perspective, a content creation perspective. I'm on Instagram, like, I don't know, a few times a month, just putting up a story saying, we want to buy deals. We're buying these deals in these markets. If you know of anyone that's selling, if you know any wholesalers that are doing business, any brokers that are doing business, connect us with those folks. So... A lot of our deals end up coming through relationships, probably the majority of them, but we still find deals through these more manual methods like marketing and prospecting. So I think you need to place an emphasis, You know, if you're an investor trying to do these great deals, you need to get yourself in front of these mom and pop owners in any possible way that you can and understand that it's harder now to do that than ever, right? I mean, it's not easy to do that now. We had much more success in all of these campaigns 12 months ago, 24 months ago, but they still work. I mean, we're still having conversations with owners because we place a really deep, consistent emphasis on getting in front of them through these different methods. So a bit of a long-winded answer, I guess, but that's kind of the high level of how we find these deals because I get this question all the time and it's like, dude, we're hustling like 30, 40 hours a week, man hours we're spending on finding deals. I mean, we have a full-time acquisitions guy now and before it was just me, but it doesn't happen by accident. Like it's a lot of work to find them, but it's one of the most profitable things that you can
0: develop your skills in and that you can get good at. Yeah. You're cold calling this list as well. And I have a long history of cold calling. I have a really extensive sales background, but maybe some of those listeners, what do you say? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I hate cold calling. I did it for
1: a while. As soon as I could get that off my plate, I did. We had some interns that came into organization that took a basically a bulk of that off of my plate. Now our acquisitions guy handles a lot of it. But really, I think at a high level, your mindset has to be, you're not calling for a deal, you're calling to build a relationship. Right. So that's step one. You can't call with a transactional mindset of like, I want to talk to this guy about buying this property. I want to get the information, make him an offer. Like, if you're looking for multifamily deals, right? Especially once you start getting a little bit large, you start getting to that twenty-plus unit size, you're not going to call someone and do a deal over the phone. That's just not going to happen. That might happen with Aunt Sally, who just inherited her cousin's single-family three-bedroom, two-bath house. Like she might sell over the phone because she's got motivation, but it's not going to happen with multifamily. So I call with the main goal of just introducing myself and networking. So I would say, if I were to call you, Justin, I'd say, "Hey, Justin." You know, I got your information off of wherever I got your information from. My name is Axel Ragnarsson. I'm a local investor in the Lakeland, Florida area. I know I'm calling you out of the blue and I know that you probably are busy and you don't have time to chat right now, which is totally fine. But I just wanted to connect with another owner in the marketplace. And I see that you own property throughout Lakeland. We own property throughout Lakeland. And I'd love to learn a little bit more about your business. You know, maybe grab coffee if you're around and just learn more about what you're doing, whether you're in the market to buy or to sell. And yeah, just hope to stay in touch, right? Some variation of that versus, hey, Justin, I'm a local investor in the Lakeland area. I saw you on the property at 123 Main Street. I'd love to make you an offer on it. The first one diffuses that conversation significantly more than the second one, which is like, all right, I'm not going to sell this. I don't even know this guy. Like, why would I sell it to him? So you start with the first strategy. And then as you build a relationship, you say, hey, by the way, I'd love to make an offer on any properties you have, but at least you've earned the right to ask that after you've chatted a couple of times. And it's still cold calling, right? Most people are still going to hang up on you, but at least you might be able to build a relationship with a few more owners and the owners that are open to building a relationship with somebody like that is typically the old school guy or gal who's owned this property for a while that does business in an old fashioned way. They want to meet another investor on the phone. And typically the people that are open to that are going to naturally be the more prone folks that would sell off market anyways. Versus if you cold call the guy that's in his early thirties and hates talking to people over the phone and doesn't like doing business that way, they're probably just going to hang up on you. Like I get these calls and I'm so wired to just hang up, hang up, hang up. I'm so used to getting spam, all that stuff that I'm like the worst person to cold call. <laughs> but the guys that are the best are the guys that are typically those mom and pop owners, older in their age, older in their careers. They're more open to spending some time talking to somebody on the phone. And after you build a relationship, your goal is you just want to be the guy that's top of mind, right? If you're top of mind, when this person decides to sell, then you've done your job and you've earned the right to make them an offer and potentially get a deal done. The vast majority of the deals that we do direct to seller, I'd be willing to say, and we have some data on this, but I don't have it off the top of my head, 80% plus come like six plus months after we've established a relationship with the seller on that first contact, whether it's they get the first mailer or we chat with them over the phone once or we start exchanging emails. It's very rarely you hit people at the perfect time, but you need to hit them. You have to develop some kind of system to stay in touch with them every couple of months, And then you're going to be the guy that's top of mind or the girl that's top of mind when they look to sell. Yeah.
0: I realize because that's kind of what the, in my opinion, misconception with cold calling is supposed to be is, well, I'm just calling a thousand people a week. Somebody will just be in the right mind to sell. And it's just a purely numbers game. And It could happen, but it's really unlikely. But the best way to be there at the quote unquote right time is to always be there, always be top of mind, always be following up or sending letters or mailers or phone calls, whatever the case may be, and really hitting that. So, yeah, I really like what you're saying. Definitely how you go about cold calling because not many people do it. And and my experience with cold calling was exactly the same. All the people I had great relationships with and conversations with were all a little bit older. And they actually respected the hustle. And they said, oh, most of the time, they also had a hardcore sales job in the past. And so there was a little sympathy there as well, but really grinding it out. And people don't do that. And these marketing cycles change. And before it was the mailers were definitely, you could send out 100 mailers, get three responses. It was typically like 3% response rate, which is amazing now if you're able to get that. And then it cycled out, then everybody started doing it. People got flooded and then the response rate stopped. And then what was the next big thing? It was texting, the auto-text. I don't know if you get auto-text. I get at least one a day. All the time. Luckily, I'm starting to sell a lot of my smaller multifamily, which is usually those auto-texters are one to four units, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I still get them for sure. All the time. And then that's getting really congested. So one thing that I've heard somebody else say, and I don't know if you've seen this yourself, but it's whatever you're getting as an owner, don't do that thing. If you're getting 20 texts a week, don't text people, send them mail then when you start getting 20 letters a week, okay, stop doing that, then do something else. And so that's another really good strategy too, that when your competition zigs, you want to zag and really be the one that stands out. That's really fantastic. I mean, chasing those tertiary markets and outside of those bigger markets, have you seen returns change a bit that really made you want to move markets or was there other motives for changing kind of going, I guess, outside of those large markets that you were talking about? Well, that's a really good
1: question, and I'm going to answer. But I want to quickly touch on something you mentioned because I think it's critical. Previously, what you mentioned, figuring out what your competitive advantage is from a marketing perspective is so critical. Like I keep all the mail I get, and I look at all the mail, and I say, what would have actually made me call this person? Oftentimes, it's a picture, right? I want to know who's sending me the mail. It's some kind of messaging that's not just, hey, I want to buy a property. If there was messaging in there, focus on building a relationship, I'd probably reach out. When I get cold called. I typically respond well to the people that do a little bit of research on me and all that stuff. So I just want to touch on that. I say, you know, if you're going to do a lot of direct-to-seller marketing, you need to figure out what everybody else is doing and differentiate yourself. So that's a great point. As for what made me want to change markets, so really the motivation was I wanted to do a higher volume of deals and I wanted to do larger deals. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't necessarily returns specifically. The market that I did a lot of business in was Manchester, New Hampshire, and we did deals throughout New Hampshire, but mainly it was in the city called Manchester, And literally, I think that over 90% of the multifamily properties, like just the housing inventory that's multifamily in Manchester is two to six units. So there's just tangibly not that many 10 plus unit multifamily properties. You know, If I pulled a list of all the 10 to 100 unit complexes that hadn't been sold in the last few years, it was like 125 line items, right? So there's only so much marketing you can do to the same people. So I wanted to do a higher volume of deals which I couldn't achieve just focusing in New Hampshire, even as a state. So I had to go look in another market, right? And I chose Lakeland, Florida and Central Florida as that market because it was very similar to Manchester. It was that tertiary style market. There was a lot of mom and pop owners, similar to what we've already kind of talked about. So for me, I was like, if I want to do all this direct to seller, I want to pick a couple markets to do it in. And I also wanted to do larger deals. And that ties into, I guess, what I've already mentioned, where If you want to do some kind of regular volume of 20 plus unit deals, you probably got to pick a few markets to do direct to seller marketing. And if you want to go direct to seller, and even if you want to work with brokers and direct to seller is not for you, you're fine working with brokers and being a little bit more selective about the deals you do that have more eyeballs on them. You still probably got to pick a few if you want to do six, seven, eight deals a year, which is my goal that we're on the larger side. So it wasn't necessarily returns. And I actually still do a lot of smaller deals with my own capital up in New Hampshire, just because we have a good competitive advantage up there. I have a lot of relationships up there. If somebody brings me a four-unit deal, even though that's way smaller than what I want to do nowadays, I'll still do it up there because I know that I can operate it well. And there's a whole slew of reasons. So really the main objective was higher volume, bigger deals, got to go into
0: a few different cities to accomplish that. And I love what you said is using data to really decide a lot of those things. Hey, I'm capped out at this market at the size that I'm looking for. You just cannot stay there. If you stay there, you will never survive and at least hit the goals that you want to hit. So really being able to use that market data and pick different markets. And then you know, at the same time, you can't, specialize everywhere, but you can't have a broad enough net. So tell us a little bit more too about the podcast you have going on. I'm a big fan of yours. I'd love to just hear a little bit more about that. What's on the horizon for the show. And you have a couple of other things, meetups from it and things like that. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So I host the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. The name comes from my Instagram handle. It's at Multifamily Wealth. You know, I'm really, really active on Instagram as well. But my elevator pitch for the podcast is: we're all tactics, we're all strategies. We're not high-level fluff that you hear everywhere else. Where it's, you know, why multifamily? You know, uh, passive income. Like typically, the listeners of my podcast are people that are in the business and they really want to operate at a higher level. So we get pretty tactical. We get some really good guests on there to talk about all different components of multifamily. And then actually, right when we finish recording here, we're going to be launching the first virtual event for the Multifamily Wealth Meetup. So if you go on meetup.com and look up multifamily wealth meetup, you'll find our meetup. It's going to be the first Wednesday of every month for about an hour and a half. You know, we're bringing in star speakers to chat, answer some Q and A and networking opportunities in there as well. So those are the two things that kind of fall under the multifamily wealth umbrella and yeah, hoping to continue growing both
0: of them. <laughs> That's the yeah. goal with these things, right? Hopefully they keep growing. Yeah. It's a great show. And we'll put a link into the show notes as well for listeners to go check that out. Other than that, the podcast is fantastic. The meetups are great. How else can people get a hold of you and who should reach out? Absolutely. So I'd love to connect
1: with folks that are doing deals in the markets I mentioned. New Hampshire, I mean, if you're in Boston, I'd love to meet up with you. But New Hampshire, Indianapolis, Central Florida, Texas, those are big ones. And again, we're looking to partner with folks that are investors, right? So we work with a lot of passive investors. If you go on our homepage at alignedrep.com, you'll find contact forms and you can download an ebook, eight reasons why... Uh, busy professionals should consider passively investing in real estate. Get you on our email list. You'll see our deals and all that fun stuff. But just like everyone in this business, deals and money, that's what we're
0: always pursuing. Fantastic. So we're going to put, again, links to all of those mentioned resources in the show notes. And listeners, if you haven't already, of course, while you're there, make sure you download our free ebook, The Definitive Guide to Building Generational Wealth and Passive cash flow Through Multifamily Real Estate. Axel, this has been a fantastic episode full of value. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Justin. Appreciate it, man.